Hello and welcome to the Friday, December 18th, 2020 edition of On Iowa Politics. I'm James Lynch from the Cedar Rapids Gazette. With me today are Brett Hayworth of the Sioux City Journal. Good morning, Brett. Good morning, James. Tom Barton of the Quad City Times. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, James. Amy Rivers of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, James. And Aaron Murphy, Lee Newspaper Statehouse Bureau Chief. Good morning, Aaron. Good morning, James. Good to be here on a very full roster day. Yeah, yeah, we're all here, including Gazette Opinion Editor Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. Todd's coming off a stellar performance in uh, Pints and Politics last night. Um, <laughs> I, I haven't read the reviews this morning. It was all good. It was all good. Yeah. <laughs> you can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to On Our Politics wherever you find your podcast. First up, Iowa 2, back on the agenda. More than six weeks after that, or maybe I should say still on the agenda, more than six weeks after the 2020 election, we're still waiting to know the outcome of the open seat race in Iowa's 2nd District. Following the developments in that race, seems like it's become a full-time job for Tom Barton. Uh, the votes have been counted and recounted, and Republican Marionette Miller-Meeks has six more votes than Democrat Rita Hart. Hart has petitioned the U.S. House to determine the winner. Uh, the GOP has uh, paused in its defense of President Donald Trump's many challenges of the outcomes of the president, presidential race to cry foul, uh, saying that Hart should accept the decision of Iowa voters and not seek um, a solution from Congress. So, Tom, what are the latest developments in Iowa 2? Uh, well, actually, we still don't have a, a petition filed yet with the, the House Committee on Administration. Um, that was um, expected uh, sometime this week or maybe um, early next week. Um, but uh, as of um, yesterday evening, uh, the committee has not received a petition yet from, um, from Rita Hart. Um, I believe she has until December 30th to do that. She had 30 days from when the state certified its results, and the state did that on November 30th. Um, but uh, the, the latest developments earlier this week, um, Iowa's Republican U.S. Senators and newly elected members of the state's congressional delegation sent a letter urging um, House leaders to reject Hart's pending petition uh, challenging the outcome in that second district race. Um, the letter was signed by um, Senators Chuck Grassley and Joni Ernst and um, incoming Republican uh, representatives-elect uh, Ashley Henson and, and Randy Feenstra, um, arguing that um, that granting a petition for a full hand recount of uh, ballots um, cast uh, in the in the race would uh, would set a dangerous uh, precedent, and that um, any action to to bypass or overturn um, a fair election uh, conducted according to Iowa law. Uh, would not be well received by uh, citizens of the state and kind of put a cloud over the results of, um, of those efforts. Um, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy uh, on Twitter yesterday said that um, if uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi tries to overturn um, the people's vote in the district, that um, Hart would be viewed as um, illegitimate. He uh, cited a poll by Republican polling firm Signal um, that was conducted for American Action uh, a Network, a conservative nonprofit, D.C.-based advocacy group. Um, according to their 
polling of 400 likely voters in Iowa's um, second district had found 58% said that if the House voted to overturn the state certified election results, um, which, you know, Miller Meeks, uh, put Miller Meeks ahead by just six votes, um, that, that they would view her as a illegitimate member of Congress. Um, Illinois Republican Rodney Davis, who's the ranking member of the House Committee on Administration, you know, has also said that or warned the House that overturning the second district results would would set a, a terrible precedent. Um, Democrats, meanwhile, um, have argued that with um, thousands of ballots left unexamined for voter intent that could have been misread by tabulation machines and dozen more uncounted in the race, including 35 ballots in Scott County um, that were cast by Iowans living overseas, including uh, military members. Um, unfortunately, those were not um, counted in the um, uh, initial canvas and recount due to a scanning error when they submitted their ballots that lapped off the, the second district race. Um, anyway, Democrats are arguing that Miller Meeks has spent the past few weeks contradicting uh, herself and her previous positions and on legal argument that all um, legally cast ballots um, had been counted. Her name was included on a letter from newly elected Republican House members that urged Congress to investigate the 2020 presidential election, citing uh, irregularities and Democrats pounced on the apparent uh, hypocrisy that Miller Meeks would have the House look into uh, the presidential race with uh, Democrat Joe Biden as a clear winner, but not her own. Um, with it being the closest federal race in the country and the closest congressional race in, in roughly a century. Um, Miller Meese campaign said her name was mistakenly added to the letter and was quickly removed. Um, so that's the latest this week. So, so Tom, what's going to happen come January 3rd when members of Congress are supposed to be sworn in? Will Iowa 2 get two seats in the House or will either one of these uh, candidates be sworn in um, as members of Congress? Yeah, um, all indications as of now are that um, that Marionette Miller Meeks will be sworn in on January third. That's what um, her campaign uh, has said and continues to say. Um, and we really haven't heard anything from House Democrats to um, to, to contradict that or suggest that uh, that they would um, block her um, from from being sworn in or seated. Although that that is a possibility. Can, can they make it hard for her uh, by not giving assigning her an office or giving her a budget or uh, not putting her on any committees? I mean, yeah. So uh, according to her uh, her campaign, she has been assigned uh, an office in the Longworth um, House office building, and um, she has been allowed one staff person to help with transition. Mm -hmm. um, but is not allowed to hire staff until um, her swearing in, according to, to her campaign. Um, and, and also according to the campaign, committee assignments remain up in the air for freshman members and assignments are determined by party leadership. So if sworn in, according to her campaign, she will be serving on committees. Now, remember it was Steve King, it was his party, it was Republican leadership in the House that stripped him of his committee assignments, not Democrats. Right. So she would, sounds like she would uh, be in a better position than King. She would get some committee assignments. But Meanwhile, um, kick this over to the other side of the state uh, in the 4th District and, and throw this out to Aaron and Brett. Um, uh, incoming Congressman or Congressman-elect Randy Feenstra um, 
who had, was very reluctant to answer questions before the election, uh, and, and I guess that didn't prevent him from handily winning Iowa's other open seat race, uh, appeared on Iowa Press this week. Um, like his predecessor, Steve King, he's another conservative Republican. Um, is there any difference? Should we expect any difference between Steve King and Randy Feenstra? Well, I would say that, um, and I was just kind of going through this, I'm writing a, <clears throat> a feature on him about, you know, joining the House here in a few weeks and going back, writing up some top 10 lists of um, you know, top things that happened with the election. And, and going through that, I saw, you know, a lot of consistency that uh, how <clears throat> Randy Feenstra sold himself on the campaign trail was was a pretty traditional kind of pocketbook uh, re Republican um, you know, Main Street issues, farms, families, and that type of thing. And, you know, the fact that Steve King became not, you know, a distraction and not very uh, able to produce on those issues is why, you know, a lot of Republicans who formerly supported King went to, to feed. So, so that's, that's a, you know, that's a selling point for him. And, and he, it's, I feel like he's still fairly consistent on that um, in, in his recent statements. And I feel like that would be his approach. And he does have a chance to be more effective, um, in some ways, because um, he's not on the outs with the leadership in the way that Steve King had been in, in recent years. Um, it appears, from what I can tell, that he has uh, a good re working relationship, or at least the potential for a good working relationship with, with Kevin McCarthy. And so that, you know, that would <clears throat> accrue to his benefit. Um, so I, I know that's going to be his approach. And uh, so, you know, there's potential there, although... And maybe I'll hand it off to Aaron at this point, but but I noticed yesterday on the Iowa Press that he does have a little bit of Steve King in, in him in the fact that he um, that Feenstra isn't ready to say that Joe Biden is is president yet, and even though the electors voted um, or cast their did, did their action, sorry, <laughs> missing the yeah, proper usage proper usage here on Monday until <laughs> that actually comes to the House, he's not ready to say Biden. Is that right, Aaron? Yeah, that that's a really good point. But although I will say, um, and, and to your larger point, that is probably about the only um, topic on which um, a Steve King interview and, and a Randy Feenstra interview would have overlapped. Uh, like you said, he, he definitely, uh, I, I loved uh, David Yepsen, the host question back to him, why can't conservative Republicans just say the words President-elect Joe Biden is, is, is kind of a fun little moment there. And, and Randy, to his credit, an answered that. Um, but aside from that, you did definitely um, see the differences, as you noted, Brett, much more of a pocketbook, um, um, Main Street business-minded uh, type of Republican, where, where Steve King definitely leaned far more into the, uh, the social uh, type issues. Um, so, so that... That, that contrast was clear um, yesterday as we taped that show, which will be airing on Iowa PBS this weekend. Um, the other thing I, I wanted to throw in there to your point, James, it, it was interesting to me um, to, to see uh, Congressman-elect Feenstra during that interview because, as you noted, he, he didn't do a lot of interviews and he, he didn't specifically do the Iowa. He didn't accept their campaign, didn't accept the Iowa press debate invite, and that was the only federal race in the cycle that, um, that, that Iowa Press wasn't able to do a debate for because the Feaster 
campaign declined. Um, I don't know what they were afraid of. I look at campaigns don't give a single hoot what I think, and I acknowledge that. But just for what it's worth, from my perspective, um, I thought uh, Congressman-elect Feenstra was very good on the show, and, and viewers can tune in over the weekend and see it that and make the judgment for themselves. But I thought he was good and well-spoken. I, I don't know, frankly, uh, what they were nervous about. I, I'm, I'm Based on what I saw yesterday, I, I, I suspect uh, Randy Feenstra would have been fine during a fourth district debate, so it's too bad that the voters didn't get a, a chance to see that. Brett, are, are you concerned at all that uh, Randy Feenster is not going to be as much fun to cover as Steve King? <laughs> um, let I I got to think about how I want to say this. Um, yes. So I <laughs> I came to the journal in um, <clears throat> September 2002, right in the middle of that election cycle. You know, with like two or three months left to go, and Steve King was was looking to be moving from a state senator to the U.S. House and I always, I always phrase it that my career has overlapped completely with Steve King's career for 18 years. And the thing that, what I will say is I, I keep thinking this and I keep thinking that I should make this into a column or something, but I can't believe I outlasted Steve King. I, 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 thought, that, I thought he was going to be congressman for life. Maybe outlasted is not the right word, but, but that my tenure at the journal is it going to extend longer than what his time in the U.S. House <laughs> and he has been fascinating to cover, and I've appreciated, you know, so many, you know, things that, that I've had access to in covering him. But um, yeah, it's 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 hard to to think that that era is ending. You're so so diplomatic there that saying he was fascinating to cover. <laughs> Certainly hey, was. That that made me think of something. Speaking of Iowa Press and. I'm going to have to give credit to both because I can't remember who said it. So it was either David Yepsen or Kay Henderson who I was on the show with said something. It was really interesting and I'd never thought about it before. And, and Brett, I'd be curious to get your reaction to this. So I, after we had taped the show and we were talking about Congressman King a little bit too, and uh, either David or Yepsen, or sorry, either David or Kay said, um, it's amazing to think that Steve King, for everything he said and done over the years and all the different times he's gotten himself in hot water, that he was, that finally came to a head and it, it finally cost him. And in the era of Donald Trump, mm, at a yeah. time when, when the party was led by the person who's maybe most like Steve King, that was the moment when Steve King was finally knocked out. I mean, and I'd never thought of it, but, that way before but that's super interesting like at a time when someone most like him was the president and the leader of his party that's when his cumulative body of work finally caught up to him I, i'd never thought of it that way before and I thought right and, and and maybe the, the only maybe what it was was just that narrow loss the three percent loss that there was blood in the water so to speak and, and that yep. at that point all bets were off you know yeah without a doubt Todd, I want to come around to you, um, and, and I guess kind of going back to the second district race. Um, this week, we've heard a lot of calls from editorial page writers about uh, uh, saying it's time that Hart should concede this race and and 
as uh, Tom told us, you know, people are suggesting that if she is seated, she'll be seen as an illegitimate member of Congress, and and this will sort of taint her, um, whatever she tries to do, and and certainly will come back to haunt her in two years when she's running for re-election. If she's seated, should there be a asterisk next to her name? Well, I mean, I I think there there obviously will be. I mean, Republicans will make sure of that uh, naturally. Because they'll, I mean, they'll. If, if she is seated, then they'll be coming back after her in 2022 with with that as part of their campaign. I mean, I think a lot of this depends on how it plays out. Uh, if she ends up winning the the seat because uh, they they count the legally cast ballots and find clear voter intent and in some of those other ballots that haven't been analyzed, then. I mean, if that's a transparent process and everybody can see what happened, then maybe it's not as bad as as if there's some sort of, uh, you know, this is contested in, in some way. And it's, uh, and, you know, it, it looks more like dirty politics than counting all the votes. I mean, that's that's kind of what it's going to come down to. It's interesting that, you know, that there's this delay in, in filing the petition. Maybe it's not a big deal, but. Uh, you wonder what sort of conversations are going on behind the scenes as to what the cost-benefit analysis is of of going through with the House investigation and the recount and and all of that and whether uh, you know you're going whether there are just diminishing returns on continuing to fight for the seat when when it seems like so many people are saying you know this this should be over now and so we'll we'll see what what Rita Hart does. And if she files the petition and moves forward, it's going to, it's going to be a long process. I mean, they're count, they're calling for a full hand recount. So that's a, uh, that could take a while. If, if uh, Rita Hart is seated, will Marionette Miller Meeks run for Congress for a fifth time? <laughs> probably, probably. <laughs> I mean, especially <laughs> if, if, if it looks like she was robbed. If this was stolen from her, then she definitely has a basis for, for coming back and running again. It's yeah. It, uh, and, and, and by the, you know, the flip side, I mean, we'll, we'll read a heart consider running again. If she loses by six votes, I, I don't, I don't know if that's going to happen, but uh, I guess a rematch is conceivable considering the, the narrow margin. <laughs> well, in better news, uh, COVID-19 vaccinations have begun in Iowa and in keeping with the dialing up and dialing down approach in Iowa and much of the nation, there already have been some hiccups in the process. Um, Aaron, almost as soon as the vaccination vaccinating began, Governor Kim Reynolds uh, and the Iowa Department of Public Health announced that Iowa was getting fewer doses than previously planned. The next day, the federal Department of HHS said, no, that wasn't the case. Um, what's going on here? Are, are we getting vaccinations or, or are we not? <laughs> uh, what's going on here is is the question du jour. Um, and uh, I don't know that we have a fantastic answer to that, unfortunately. What we do know, and I say for sure, and I guess I should say for as sure as we can be at the moment, um, is that the state is now definitely expecting fewer doses than originally projected. Um, the, the, the state told us originally they were expecting between the Pfizer and Moderna 
vaccines. Um, They're expecting 172,000 doses in December. That has been reduced to uh, a little more than 130,000, I believe 138,000, um, somewhere in there, uh, somewhere in the 130,000. Is, is, so, so there's been a slight reduction. What's even less clear still is why that number was reduced or how it was reduced or who's responsible for it being reduced. Um, there's a lot of questions and very few answers on that front still um, uh, the next day. Uh, but they have confirmed as much as that word carries any weight <laughs> at the current moment um, that that the projection has been lowered. Now, that's still a lot. And that's it's obviously enough to get the ball rolling here with the process and hospital workers and, and nursing home residents and staff have been prioritized. So they'll still be getting those. It's, it's just not quite as much as was originally thought. And and the, and they kind of. <laughs> Maybe seeing what's happened uh, once already and, and worried about what's to come, uh, the state has cautioned that that number could continue to fluctuate in the coming days and weeks. So, so, so don't sit on this one for too long either. Yeah. Wouldn't you like to be the hospital administrator who has to go to a, a nurse or a, you know, a janitor and say, oh, sorry, we're not getting all the dosages that we were promised, so I guess you're going to have to wait. Yeah, and that's that's the actually the very real concern is in the nursing home. So the, so they're prioritizing the hospitals within that first batch, and then and then the nursing homes are next. And there's and there's growing concern that there will be enough now to to start getting to those people as early as they had hoped, which was what originally planned to be at the end of this month. Now there's concern uh, that it, it might be a little longer. We might be into next year before we get to those folks. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, Amy, uh, Iowa's COVID numbers don't seem to be showing significant improvement, um, but that hasn't stopped the Reynolds administration from dialing back some of her public health restrictions. Um, what's changed um, to, to lead her to do that? I mean, I, I couldn't, I couldn't all speculate, of course, but, but basically, um, you know, cases have been going down. I, I, we see, you know, mid-November being our most recent peak, but we're still higher than, you know, we were even in May, even in September um, as far as cases, but they are on the decline. So I suspect that that probably is, is guiding her, um, you know, recent relaxation of the restrictions. However, hospitalizations are still kind of steady, if not going down just slightly. Deaths are still and the big issue with deaths um, is that we're just rising higher and higher in, in deaths by population. I mean, we were, when I was um, getting the numbers on Monday, we were 20th in the nation, which is a little less than the, the United States average. Um, and today, when I'm looking at the KFF.org indicator of you know per capita deaths, we are 12th. So that's a jump of eight spots in in five days as far as deaths. We've now got over a thousand deaths per million population. So that's a really worrying stat that obviously is a lagging indicator from cases. And if you wait until cases get bad again to to shut things down and then simply open them back up when they've started coming down, you're not going to fix that deaths number. That's that's the big thing. It reminds me of um, you know the people that you know, are are having an issue and then get on a medication or get on some treatment and then get better. And then what do they do? They think, 
I don't need this now. I'm better. So it's it's that sort of like, just just hold off on it a little bit more. We've got the vaccine now. You know, it, it's still coming into itself. It's going to be a few months before everybody gets it. But if we could just hold on for those few months, honestly, we could save a lot of lives. Uh, for what it's worth, I had a face mask to face shield uh, meeting with my doctor this week, and she said that it's probably going to be late spring or summer before everyone gets vaccinated. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, we really don't know when we'll get a vaccination because we learned this week, Aaron, that decisions about which workers should be given access uh, are being made by a panel meeting in secret, away from nosy news reporters. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. That, uh, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. James. Okay. Uh, yeah. It's so, and this is in a, if you pull back from this, it's kind of the um, traditional constant uh, debate over government transparency um, seems even more important at, at a, at a moment like this. Um, the, so the, the state created this um, expert advisory panel infectious disease specialists, other doctors, um, other stakeholders that um, are creating a series of recommendations to then pass along to the governor and the public health department about what is the best way to distribute these first batches of the vaccine while there's still a limited supply. So basically right now and for the next couple of months, while the vaccine's still being rolled out, before we have enough to just give to everybody, uh, as your doctor told you, James, that's that's what we constantly hear. It's going to be into next spring or even summer before it's widely available enough for everybody to just go get one whenever they want. So until then, how do we distribute the vaccine? Who do we prior, prioritize making this available to? And that's what this group was formed to do, to, to work through that and make recommendations to the state. What has been troubling to... Um, journalists for sure, and, and hopefully um, a, a lot of people, is that this group has been meeting in private. They've been posting minutes of their meetings, but if anyone's ever read minutes, you can basically make those as detailed or as not as you mm -hmm. want and basically put whatever you want in there. Um, and they said they will make their recommendations public, but the process itself, the discussions are, are being held in private. Um, I will say, if as I try to take off my journalist hat. Um, I, I get the argument to a certain degree. These are incredibly heavy discussions these people are having. If you, if you boil it down, what these folks are saying is, okay, who gets the potentially life-saving vaccine first before this other group of people? We're, we're essentially ranking people as, as to how important they are to us. That, that, that's a tough discussion to have. I get that. Now, that said, um, transparency in government is always important. The, the, the more that it, a government does its work in view of the public and, and, it, and, and its constituents, the better it works. And gee, it's just so hard to do it otherwise is not typically a great excuse to not do it that way. And, and, and we could get into the whole slippery slope thing too. Well, if this group says that, what's the, what's to stop the next group from saying that too. And then pretty much everybody's saying, well, hey, we just can't do this in public. It's too hard. So we're going to 
hold all our meetings in, in, in private. Um, Randy Evans from the Freedom of Information Council, I think, put it best. He said, uh, this is maybe the most important thing our government bodies are doing right now is working on distribution of the of the of this vaccine and it, and it just really seems like that work should be being done in public. Todd as journalists we like to always say that sunlight is the best medicine and and certainly as Aaron talked about uh it seems like there's a need for transparency here um when uh, a panel is making what really are life and death decisions uh, for some people. Um, this seems unlikely to inspire confidence uh, in the public uh, in, in the process that's being used here. Um, and the reasoning, you know, the need for a free flowing dialogue is the same argument that public officials from school boards to the state legislature make for closing meetings. So, um, it, could there be sort of a backlash here, uh, the lack of confidence in these decisions? Uh, being made, uh, yeah, it's. A, I mean, this is a. It's a. It's a really lousy way to inspire public confidence in this in this vaccine distribution. When I mean, you're you're already facing a lot of disinformation out there and conspiracy theories and and all of these things that are circulating through social media. And then you've got the government making these decisions behind closed doors. That's 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 not going to sit well with a lot of people. And I, I mean, as as Aaron said, I I, I get it. These are these are. Uh, sensitive, you know, discussions, but it's also an incredible, these are also incredibly consequential life and death decisions. And to sort of say, well, Iowans, you can go ahead and, you know, watch your planning and zoning commission rezone some ag land at the edge of the city. You can see that, but you can't see this. Uh, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Also, I haven't heard a decent legal argument for why these for why these meetings are closed. I think the argument that's been advanced is pretty shaky. And yeah. so I don't know if it was just they didn't think about this or what they thought was going to happen, but other states are holding open meetings on of these type of advisory boards. So, uh, and, it, and you know, it, it also is part of a long line of misgivings that we've all had about the Reynolds administration and, you know, delivering correct data and showing us the models and the methods that they're using for making decisions and all of these things that have sort of been hidden from public view. And now the board that's deciding who's going to get vaccines and when is meeting in secret. It's just the whole package uh, doesn't pass the smell test. So I, I really think they should reconsider this and, and, and have these deliberations, uh, you know, in the sunlight, as you say. Yeah, uh, it's all about the metrics, um, but we're going to keep those secret. Uh, trust us. So. Amy, you've been following this, this very closely. What's your prediction on when uh, journalists uh, will get the vaccine? Are we essential workers, priority population, or in that other category? Oh, my gosh. I, I would hope we're above household pets at this point. <laughs> If I can get one before my cat, that would be great. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the good thing, um, and, and I don't know if this is true for you guys, the good thing for me um, from, from working from home is that a lot of what I do can be done via Zoom or via phone. And so I'm sort of able to stay in my bubble, except for, you know, there are times when we need to go out and be on the scene of things. 
Um, and so that does put us at a little bit higher risk, but at the same time, I've, you know, every time I've gone out, you know, I've been able to, you know, wear a mask. I've, you know, asked other people to wear a mask. So I think that there, there rightly probably should be a lot more people ahead of us, unfortunately, but again, just above the pets, anywhere above there, that'd that'd be fine. (laughs) Are you hearing from anti-vaxxers? Uh, or are they just quietly lining up and rolling up their sleeves? Well, um, you know, I was uh, on site of the Unity Point vaccinations yesterday, and uh, the chief medical officer, who's also a practicing uh, physician, was one of the first to, to get his shot. And, um, you know, I asked him, are, are, you know, these aren't mandatory, obviously, but how is the um, feeling around here? Are, are people signing up for this? He's like, we've actually got a really good um, percentage of people, at least 80% of people want to get the shot. We're just like, 80? That, does, that seems pretty low for healthcare providers. And he said, nationally, it's 50 to 60%. And that's among yeah. people that are working with COVID-19 patients every single day. So it, it's just, yeah, I mean, it's definitely possible that, you know, an anti-vax movement will, you know, decline to get the shot. It's also possible that there's a lot of people on the fence. And I think that there's more of those people that um, just want to sort of see those first shots come out and see how that goes and hear from people getting those shots and and sort of just be reassured. And so that's sort of where I see our job is right now is reassuring those people. Well, Mike Pence got his shot uh, Friday morning and uh, apparently Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi are getting their shots sometime next week. So uh, I I guess maybe that will... uh, yeah, yeah, that will diminish the the political argument against uh, getting the vaccine. So uh, perhaps that will help. Uh, it, it also seems to me that you know a lot of the opposition to the vaccination isn't coming from anti-vaxxers, but coming from sort of the MAGA crowd. So um, mm-hmm. maybe maybe uh, you know seeing Mike Pence get his vaccination will help. Uh, you know. Uh, ease their fears and concerns about the microchips and other things that the government is putting in there. <laughs> Have you seen that meme with Bill Gates sitting at the folding table that with yeah. the sign that says, you don't deserve to be microchipped, change my mind? <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving along here on the heels of our discussion last week about the sand for governor.com domain name being registered, Bleeding Heartland reports that state auditor Rob Sand, uh, in a ask me anything session this week has not ruled out a bid for governor or U.S. senator or re-election as state auditor. Uh, Sand told Laura Balin that for now he's just being a regular Iowan, quote, enjoying the holidays, deer hunting season, and his current job. Um, he was one of the headliners at Progress Iowa's holiday event this week, and uh, I received an email from Lieutenant, former Lieutenant Governor Sally Peterson uh, asking for money on his behalf, uh, simply saying that he will be on the ballot in 2022. Is he toying with us, Todd? Oh, this is this is kind of the normal hard to get period of the candidate courtship ritual. So he is kind of hinting that he might run for something else, or maybe he'll just keep his job. And <clears throat> for now, he's just being the best deer hunter he can be. And that's... Uh, <laughs> And that's, you know, that's what he wants to do. So it's, (laughs) I mean, this, yeah, this is, this is, as I say, fairly typical in this early period. And, uh, you know, he'll, he'll probably show up at a lot of different democratic functions, at least virtually or in person. 
and uh, sort of gauge what sort of enthusiasm he gets and and go from there. And Aaron tells us he's getting actionyforgovernor.com vibes. Um, <laughs> would Iowa's lone Democratic member of Congress uh, give up that seat and run for governor, Aaron? Yeah, I mean, that would be, I've had that same thought. That would be the maybe the most dangerous thing, politically speaking, for the party anyways, if uh, Cindy actually did that. I mean, she has won that district twice, but just barely both times. They've both been close races um, over Republican uh, David Young. Now, that said, who knows what the next the next election will be under a probably a different looking district because we'll have redistricting here. So who knows? Maybe the third actually gets a little more Democratic. I, I guess we'll see. Um, but, yeah, there's that threat that she runs for another office and, and then the Republican wins that seat back and all of a sudden Democrats are a big offer in the congressional uh, delegation instead of at least having just the one. Um, but yeah, there's definite, look, um, she hasn't said anything officially yet. It sounds like, uh, I was just talking to Dave Price from uh, WHO TV here in Des Moines. Um, he's got Cindy Axney on his show this weekend, I believe. And, and it sounds like she's, as expected, not ready to commit to anything yet, but but so but you read the tea leaves and you can see that she has interest. Is she going to pull the trigger and run for governor? Who knows? But you know, when a member of Congress issues a statement immediately reacting to a state-specific issue, uh, as Cindy Axney did this week right after Governor Reynolds announced that she is loosening some of the COVID restrictions. I mean, that has nothing to do with uh, Cindy Axney's job as Congresswoman of the 3rd District. Um, that's one of those flags that you see that the, it's someone that's kind of paying attention to and wanting to be in the conversation on state-level issues. Um, that's that's where that uh, axneyforgovernor.com vibe comes from. <laughs> There's also some suggestions and that she could run, might be uh, encouraged to run for U.S. Senate in 2022. Um, and, of course, all the same uh, qualifiers that Aaron just mentioned would apply to that. But uh, I think it's probably worth pointing out, as Republicans, I'm sure, will, that Axne already has someone voting for her in Congress. Uh, so maybe she could do both jobs, serving Congress and be governor at the same time. <laughs> the proxy vote and that but that is a good point james and that's going to dominate a lot of this discussion until the field start to form up is that there's two big races that any and, and the same thing with rob sand the the senate race and the governor race that uh, the democrats are going to have to figure out a if they're going to run at all and b which one they want to run for and we didn't even add in with rob sand that if tom miller retires it's he could run for uh, attorney general as well he, he could. And if he does, we'll talk about it on a future edition of On Iowa Politics. I hope, hope today's uh, edition was worth your time. If you like it, tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you find your podcast. Send your fan mail to podcast at thegazette.com. You can find us on the home pages of the Quad City Times, Sioux City Journal, Muscatine Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Waterloo, Cedar Falls Courier, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. William Elliott Whitmore will take us out. And if you know an Iowa band or musician who should be on our show, send us a sound file and subscribe to On Iowa Politics. 
For Brett, Amy, Tom, Aaron, Todd, and our producer, Stephen, I'm James Lynch. Thanks for listening. Stay well. Our Saturday night bonanzas are known from here to Kansas as being the thing to do. We like to pass around that shine, get everybody feeling fine, drinking that good old South Lee County brew. Oh, put it to your lips and take a little nip. Oh, you know your bell is rung when you can't feel your tongue And all you did was take a little sip Oh, tip back the jar So good so far And we'll drink until we don't know what to do Oh, we'll hoop and we'll holler And we'll take another swallow Of that good old South Lee County brew Another batch will be done soon And we'll be howling at the moment What tomorrow brings I haven't got a clue All I know is tonight I'll be feeling alright With my bottle of South Lee County brew Oh, put it to your lips And take a little nip Oh, you know your bell is wrong When you can't feel your tongue And all you Take a little sip Oh, tip back the jar So good so far And we'll drink until we don't know what to do Oh, we'll hoop and we'll holler We'll take another swallow Of that good old South Lee County brew Some folks say that the jar's half empty Some folks say that the jar's half full And some folks like me don't give a damn As long as I get another pull Oh, tip back the jar So good so far And we'll drink until we don't know what to do and we'll holler, we'll take another swallow of that good old South Lee County brew. Oh, we'll dance a little jig and we'll take another swig of that good old South Lee County brew.